Well, if you're anything like me, you love a good story. And aren't some of the best stories in life true stories? Little, little fun fact about me. My wife and I, on the rare occasion, and I do mean rare, that we have a chance to watch a movie together, she'll often nudge me in the side and she'll say, is this based on a true story? And I think some of that intrigue, right, is when we hear a story, it's that much more special when we find out it is based on a true story. I don't know about you, but I tend to gravitate to historical accounts of courage and valor. You know the kind, the kind that leave you awestruck and inspired. History is filled with stories of individuals who courageously and sacrificially laid their own lives down to rescue others who would inevitably, their lives would face certain danger had they not been rescued. And in some cases, the individuals being saved were completely unaware that their lives were even in danger during their own rescue mission to save them. And they came to learn about it later. Here's one such story. On November 7, 1907, Jesus Garcia, a 23-year-old brakeman, was taking a break in the freight yard in Nacozari, Sonora, Mexico, when he noticed smoke in the air. Garcia then realized that sparks from his train's chimney stack had blown back onto the first cars, igniting the hay on top. And the day's cargo made all the difference. You see, the train was transporting 70 boxes of dynamite, detonators, and fuses. Now, that was bad enough on its own, but letting the train explode in the train yard amongst other gas tanks and dynamite stores would have been catastrophically worse. So rather than run or take cover to save himself from the impending explosion, Garcia hopped back on board and threw the train into reverse, driving full steam to get the doomed train as far away from civilization as possible. The train had traveled about four miles when the explosives blew. It's said that a shower of debris and gravel pelted the ground for several minutes afterward. And all they ever found of the heroic brakeman was a single boot. Thirteen people died, which, while tragic, was a vast improvement over the numerous people that would have lost their lives had the entire yard blown up. In appreciation, the the town changed its name to Naco Zari de Garcia, then took up a collection to build a monument honoring their fallen hero. Today, an elaborate train memorial, obelisk, and gravestone still stand in Nakazari. Wow. We need more men like this today. Now, as incredible as that true story is, it pales in comparison to another true story which stands alone in terms of rescue missions. Turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, and we'll read verses 4 through 7. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This morning, we're going to look at history's greatest rescue mission, as described by Paul here in this text. Specifically, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at what did God do, How did God do it? And why did God do it? Let's pray and ask God for help with unfolding our text this morning. 
Dear Father, we confess that we are needy people. We are completely dependent on you. And we know our insufficiency. We're reminded of it. Father, we come to you this morning. We're dependent on you for your word, Lord. We're hungry for your word. So we just ask that you speak to us through the pages of scripture, through our text this morning. Help us to understand what you have said to us here through Paul and help us understand your plan, which is unfolded from eternity past. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul says in verse 4, But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared. Verse 4 is a lead-in to what follows in verses 5 through 7. Verses 4 through 7 are one single run-on sentence. A run-on sentence, meaning there are a lot of commas, but there's only one period at the end of verse 7. Now, you can always tell when Paul, the writer here, gets excited because typically you'll see this. You'll see this run-on sentence that contains enough doctrine that it could yield three or four sermons in just the one sentence. And that's the case here. It's as if Paul gets lost in the glorious truth of what God did for us. The word but here in verse 4 is a conjunction. A conjunction is a word that ties two phrases together. Tying what comes before it, what Paul says in verse 3, with what comes right after it, what Paul says in verse 4. This word but marks a transition or a stark contrast from the statement directly before it. So in order to truly understand what Paul's saying here in verse 4, we have to read verse 3, right before it. Verse 3 says... For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. What Paul says in verse 3 is the antithesis to what he says in verse 4. Paul says we once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. It's important to note here that the way this is structured grammatically, Paul is saying we were active in our role in partaking in these things. Paul says this is what you were, but now something radically different has happened to you. Paul turns us from remembering our former condition just like all the unsaved, to remembering our present condition. It's a striking contrast between what we once were in Adam compared to what we are now in Christ. Back to verse 4. But when? There's a transition here. Man is no longer active. Paul says, but when? He's noting God is active in the actor God intervenes and breaks into the picture, saving and rescuing man from a path of self-destruction. Man is completely passive because man is the one being rescued. Isn't that the case in real life rescue missions? Think about it. The rescuer is the active one and the one being rescued is the passive one, right? Otherwise, the people being rescued, they wouldn't need to be rescued. They could do it all themselves, right? And so it is here. This word kindness in verse 4 in the Greek denotes generosity and goodness of heart. Kindness is the tender concern of God providing for helpless man what man could never provide for himself. Kindness is God's goodness and action. We see this same word in Romans 2.4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? And we see this word in Ephesians 2, 7. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God's kindness leads him to be kind to the loss. 
It's God's nature to have mercy on sinners and to draw sinners to himself. It is his kindness that does this. Back to verse 4. God our Savior. The word Savior here literally means deliverer or the one who rescues. The name was given by the ancient Greeks to deities and was a common Greek epithet for Zeus and Apollo. Zeus, our Savior. Apollo, the Savior. But here in the New Testament, the word Savior is applied to both God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you drop down to verse 7, Jesus Christ, our Savior, in verse 7, is synonymous with God, our Savior, in verse 4. We see this in Titus 1.4. Turn there. Titus 1.4. Grace and peace. To t- Let's start at the beginning. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Both God the Father and Christ Jesus are called the Savior. Also, if you flip over to Titus 13, 2.13, it says, Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. The pronoun our in Titus 2.13 includes the titles God and Savior. Both titles are referring to Christ. So Savior is a title the Lord Jesus Christ shares with God the Father. This highlights the deity of Christ. Because frankly, if God the Father is Savior and Christ is Savior, then that means that Christ is also God because God is the only one who saves. God is the only Savior and he's the only one who rescues people from their sin. Love for mankind, in verse 4, is the word philanthropia. Philanthropia. This is where we get the word philanthropy from. It's literally saying God's philanthropy to mankind. This word describes God's compassion and eagerness to rescue or deliver man from pain, trouble, and danger. It expresses itself in action and desire to help. We see this all throughout the four Gospels. Whenever the Lord Jesus encounters someone in trouble or in pain, Think about the compassion that he had on them. It's what led him, when he saw someone suffering, it's what led the Lord to step in and intervene. It was as if he couldn't allow that on his watch. When he was there, he had to step in. He had to intervene. This is the heart of God. This is what drove him to heal the sick, to give sight to the blind, to cast out demons, and to ultimately lay his own life down by saving sinners by dying on the cross. His great compassion and generous love for mankind is what compelled him to do this. And so we see it here in Titus 3, verse 4. All men are helpless and lost apart from God's philanthropia, his great love for mankind. The verb appeared in verse 4 is where we get the word epiphany. It means to shine upon, to bring to light, or to become visible. We see this word in Titus 2.11. Look there real quickly. Titus 2.11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. God's kindness and love for mankind appeared and shined upon us in the form of the incarnation of the Messiah. Christ Jesus, our Savior. So summing up verse 4, but when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, what did God do? He saved us. Paul says in verse 5, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. The verb saved in verse 5 means rescuing from great peril, loss, 
or danger. It's used of physical deliverance from danger or from perishing. But it's also, it also has a spiritual sense of rescue from sin, judgment, and eternal destruction. This verb is in the aortist tense, meaning that the saving act of God is a past fact. He saved us, or put another way, he rescued us from great danger. But Paul says here in verse 5, God saving us wasn't on the basis of deeds. This word deeds in verse 5 describes toil, labor, effort, work. Paul's literally, literally saying he saved us not out of works, not on the basis of our deeds, our salvation, God rescuing us from the danger our own sin put us in, is not based on our worthiness or our merit or anything we were or are or ever could be. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. The fact is, there is no amount of effort, or labor, or deeds that could ever earn enough merit or favor with God to owe us our salvation. Do you realize that, beloved? There's nothing. There's no amount to put God on the hook to owe us anything other than what we truly deserve. Isn't that right? Isaiah 64, 6 says, All our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Literally saying, like filthy rags to God. So for one who is not a believer, who's unsaved, all the religious works, all the deeds, it's like, it's like filthy rags to God. It is a, an abomination to him. And that's what Paul's saying here. Our deeds didn't earn it. And we didn't work for it. We are saved by God's finished deed. Not by our deeds. The hymn writer had it right when he said, not the labors of my hands could fulfill thy law's commands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. So Paul says in verse 5, not on the basis of deeds, which we've done in righteousness. The word righteousness here speaks of God's standard to which man is expected to live up to. Being in accordance with what God requires. It's all that God is, all that God requires, and all that God commands. Man's righteousness always falls short of God's righteousness. Romans 3.23 says... For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the man who trusts in Christ, however, becomes, 2 Corinthians 5.21, the righteousness of God in him. The man who trusts in Christ alone becomes in Christ all that God requires a man to be. The man who trusts in Christ alone becomes in Christ all that God requires a man to be. It's an imputed righteousness. It's not our own. It's not our own deeds. It it has to be given to us. It has to be placed on us. Not on the basis of deeds, which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Verse 5. Mercy. Mercy is the spontaneous loving kindness of God which causes him to deal in compassion, pity, and tender affection with the miserable and distress. And beloved, doesn't that, doesn't that describe us before God saved us? Absolutely miserable, in great distress, in great danger, only we didn't even realize it at the time how much danger we were in, Right? Mercy is compassion that forbears punishment, even when justice demands it. It's compassion or forbearance shown especially to the rebel 
or the lawbreaker. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loves us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We sin and experience guilt for our sin and receive God's grace instead. We receive God's grace, which took us from being guilty before God to God declaring us not guilty. But we also needed mercy to deal with the consequences of our sin, which may remain unaffected by grace. Psalm 103.10 says, He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. God's mercy extends to the alleviation of the consequences of our sin. So we looked at, what did God do? He saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. How did God do it? How did God save us? You know, every rescue mission has a plan, right? There's a plan. What was the plan? What was the means that God used to rescue us? By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. This phrase in verse 5, the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, what does this phrase mean? The word for washing here literally refers to taking a bath. All right, that's pretty simple. Taking a bath. However, in this context, it's referring to a spiritual bath, spiritual cleansing. We see this same word in Ephesians 5, 26, which says, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Our brother Cha, he ran over that text last week, speaking about Christ and his church, the washing of water with the word. We see this also in John 13.10. Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. And we see this in the Old Testament in Ezekiel chapter 36. Turn there, Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36, and let's read verse 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Beloved, when we were saved, we were washed clean from the filth and corruption of our sin. We were spiritually dead. We were spiritually dead, just like a putrid, rotting corpse. But we were washed clean from the filth, the stench, and stain of sin. The word of God is the bath water. The word of God is the bath water, the washing of water that God uses to make us clean and cleanse us spiritually. This word in Titus 3.5, regeneration, is palingenesia. Easy for me to say. Palingenesia. In the Greek, palin means again, and genesia means genesis or birth. This word literally means birth again or new birth. It refers to God imparting spiritual life to us. Put another way, it's talking about being born again. Ephesians 2.1 says, before God saved us, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Because we were dead, because we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we were unable to respond to God. This is why the Lord Jesus says in John 3, 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And again, we see this in Ezekiel 36. Let's look at verse 26. It goes on to say, verse 26, Moreover, I will give you 
a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Beloved, when we were saved, God imparted life to us and brought us from spiritual death to spiritual life. We went from being dead and unresponsive to God, unable to see, unable to hear, unable to discern or have any desire for God or desire for spiritual things to being made alive. Finally, being able to respond to God, finally able to see, finally able to hear, finally able to understand and respond to God and have new desires and affections for the things of God. Regeneration is the new state of things in contrast to the old. It's a complete change of life that one sees in a new birth of a redeemed person. Regeneration isn't something one is able to do on their own. It's a work that God alone has to do to a person. Just like we had nothing to do with our physical birth, that was a work of God, right? Who among us determined where we were going to be born, who we were going to be born to, what time we were going to be born? We had nothing to do with it, right? Nothing to do with it. It was all a work of God. So it is with the new birth. Regeneration is a work of God's grace where a believer becomes a new creature in Christ Jesus. It is a complete change of heart wrought by the Holy Spirit where a person's whole nature is changed. The word renewing here in verse 5 is describing a renovation or a complete change for the better. It's an adjustment of the moral and spiritual thinking to the mind of God which has a transforming effect on one's life. We see this in Romans 12 too, where it says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And again, look at Ezekiel 36. Let's read verses 26 and 27. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. God did a complete rehabilitation on us and completely renovated us. He did an HGTV on us. He took out the old, cold, dead, stony heart and gave us a new, tender, living heart that is able to respond to him and love him. He took out the old, dead spirit and gave us a new spirit that loves him and is able to walk now in his statutes and ordinances. This complete renovation and renewing of the heart and mind is all the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's the means that God used to rescue us from spiritual death and eternal separation from God. Further describing how God saved us, Paul goes on to say in verse 6 about the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. This word for poured out means to pour forth, to gush out, to bestow or distribute largely. We see this word in Acts 2, 17 and verse 33. It says, And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. In other words, it's not a small amount that he pours out. And what did he pour out upon us? He poured out an abundant amount of the Holy Spirit upon us as believers. How did he pour out the Holy Spirit upon us as believers? Richly. The word richly here in verse 6 is an adverb. Now, going back to grammar, it's been a long time for some of us. An adverb describes a verb, right? 
So that's why we see it right before the verb poured out here in verse 6. This, this word richly means abundant, abundantly, copiously. It's the same word used in Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And we see the word in 1 Timothy 6.17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So in other words, you don't get a small amount of the Holy Spirit given to you. You get an abundant, plentiful, heaping amount when we place our trust in Christ for salvation. The Holy Spirit brings us to life spiritually. He sustains us, empowers us, and is the guarantee of our down payment of our eternal life. Ephesians 1:13 and 14 says, "In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise." who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So God lavished the Holy Spirit on us and poured out a rich, extravagant amount on us without measure. So how did God save us? What was the plan? What means did God use to rescue us from spiritual death? by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now we come to the question all of your kids always ask you. Why? Why? Why did God do it? Why did God save us? Why did he break into history to rescue us? We see it here, right in this text. Titus 3, verse 7. So that being justified by his grace. So that, in verse 7, is a conjunction that, again, joins together two phrases or sentences, tying together what came before it with what comes after it. So why did God do all the stuff we walked through in verses 5 and 6? Save us according to his mercy washing us by regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit whom he richly poured out upon us through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that, or in order that, being justified, verse 7, justified in the New Testament describes the act by which man is brought into a right state or right relationship to God. It's God declaring us innocent and therefore absolved from the charges of high crimes and treason against God, and from the payment of a debt owed to God. Now, in the context of this verse, Paul is equating being justified with salvation in general. So, stated another way, Paul's simply saying, he's summing up the transaction that occurs for us as believers when we're given salvation by God. So that being justified, Paul says, by his grace, grace is God's loving kindness or favor which bestows upon one that which he does not deserve. 2 Timothy 1.9 says, God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Grace is God's merciful kindness by which applying his holy influence upon sinners, God turns them to Christ. He keeps them. He empowers them. He strengthens them. He increases them in faith and knowledge and affection for him and enables them to exercise and pursue godliness. Paul says, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs. Heirs. The word heir here describes an inheritor, one who receives an inheritance. 
One who receives an allotted possession by right of sonship. We see this word heirs in Romans 8, 16, 17, where it says, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we might also be glorified with him. This phrase, we would be made heirs, is in the passive voice. And it highlights the change in our status from being spiritual beggars to spiritual heirs was the result of an action made completely outside of us. We had nothing to do with it. Just like a child who's been given an inheritance, they have no say in the will of the father, in the trust. That's the father's own prerogative, right? So it is here. Us being made heirs is totally the work of God and independent of any merit on our part. The believer's heirship is not just a present hope, but a future reality that motivates us to godliness. What does it mean to be an heir? We're talking about sonship. Sonship. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Let's read verse 5. Ephesians 1.5, it says, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. As an adopted son or daughter of God, you are an heir. You are an inheritor of all the riches God possesses in Christ. Everything that Christ inherited through his death, burial, and resurrection, all of Christ's riches are shared with us. We will rule and reign as kings alongside Christ, as heirs. Paul says we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The word hope here describes the expectation of good based on the promises of God. It's joyful and confident expectation. It has to do with the unseen and the future. Romans 8.24 says, For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? Hope is a confident expectation of our future reality as believers and a full realization of the life which right here in the present is already the believer's possession by faith. The phrase eternal life, specifically the word for life, is zoe. It's where we get the word zoo or zoology from. It describes the absolute fullness of life which belongs to God. Adding that word eternal to the word life describes our souls and conditions in Christ never ceasing, without end. Eternal life is the real and genuine life, a life active and vigorous, devoted to God, a blessed life experienced even in this world by those who put their trust in Christ. Eternal life is life as God has it, that which God the Father has in himself, and that which he gave to the incarnate Son to have in himself. Man has been separated and alienated from the life of God as a consequence of the fall. Men become partakers of the life of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who becomes the author of all who place their trust in him. Eternal life is the actual present possession of the believer because of his relationship in Christ. And the certainty, the certainty that eternal life will one day be extended to the body is guaranteed by the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Eternal life and all the benefits and blessings that come with it begin the moment we put our trust in Christ for salvation. Do you realize that? Eternal life isn't something we're striving for that we hope we get one day, we get to one day. You have eternal life right now, beloved. Right now. It began the moment you put your trust in Christ. You were made alive. 
eternal life. Being separated from God is spiritual death. Spiritual life is the life of God in us. It's us going from being cut off and separated from the life of God to being restored and brought back into a living, vibrant relationship with him. Eternal life speaks to quality of life. It's not just talking about length of life. It's quality of life. You have it now as a believer in Jesus Christ. Eternal life is the firm foundation and present possession of the believer. So, why did God save us? Why did God rescue us from the dangerous mess we got ourselves in through our own sin and rebellion? So that, being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What is the hope of eternal life? Paul uses this phrase in Titus 1-2 where he says, in the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago. The hope of eternal life is built on the unbreakable promises of God. The hope of eternal life is the confident expectation that when we die, we're going straight to heaven into God's eternal presence. It's the expectation of receiving our promised rewards at the Bema seat of Christ. It's the expectation of the resurrection where where we will put on a restored immortal body which never gets sick, which never gets tired, which never breaks down, which never grows old. It's the expectation of ruling and reigning with Christ in his kingdom forever. It's the expectation of obtaining an inheritance, 1 Peter 1.4, which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Question, is your hope the hope of eternal life? Is this what your eyes are fixed on and what your life is built around? Let me reassure you, there is nothing in this life that compares. There's nothing else worth living for. So what did God do? He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. How did God do it? By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Why did God do it? So that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We looked at a story earlier of a man who courageously laid down his life to rescue others. But the following story more closely illustrates what God sacrificially did to rescue us. John Griffith was a Missouri man who was the controller of a great railroad drawbridge across the Mississippi during the Great Depression. One fine summer day in 1937, John decided to take his eight-year-old son, Greg, to work with him. At noon, John raised the bridge to allow transit to any ships that might pass by and sat on the observation deck with Greg to eat their lunch. The minutes passed lazily as the noonday beat down on them. Suddenly, John was jolted by the sound of a shrieking train whistle in the distance. He looked quickly at his watch. It was 107, and the Memphis Express with 400 passengers was roaring toward the raised bridge. He leaped up from the observation deck and ran back to the control tower. Before throwing the master lever, he looked down to see if any ships were passing below. The sight he saw caused his pounding heart to leap into his throat. Greg had slipped from the observation deck and had fallen into the massive gears that operate the bridge. His left leg was caught in the cogs of the two main gears. Desperately, John's mind raced to devise a rescue plan. 
the seconds were quickly ticking away. And he knew there wasn't enough time for him to rescue his only son before the train reached the bridge. Again, with alarming closeness, the train's shrill whistle cut through the summer air. He could hear the wheels as they clacked along the tracks. That was his son trapped below. Yet, there were 400 passengers on the train. John knew what he had to do. So he buried his head and his left arm and pushed the lever forward to lower the bridge. Just seconds after the massive bridge settled into place, the Memphis Express with its 400 passengers barreled across the river. When John lifted his tear-streaked face, he looked into the passing window of the train. There were businessmen casually reading their newspapers, finely dressed ladies in the dining car sipping coffee, and children eating bowls of ice cream. No one looked at the control tower. No one saw the great gearbox. The train let out one parting whistle, and the only sounds that were left were the sobs of the broken man and the clicking wheels fading in the distance. Heart-wrenching story. A story that truly hits home for any parent. Like that story, God not only sacrificed his son to save us, but he sent his son to bear the weight of his wrath and judgment and to die on a cross for our sin. Clearly, we didn't deserve it due to our sin and rebellion against the holy God. And at that time when God did it for us, we were completely oblivious. Just like the people on the Memphis Express train when John Griffith pushed the lever forward to lower the bridge. Just like those people going on with life as normal, we were completely oblivious to what God did for us. We had no clue at the time of God's agony, his heartache and pain when he sacrificed his only son to save and rescue us. In fact, it's a picture of the unbeliever as well going about life as usual, completely oblivious to what God has done to save them, to rescue them. Ultimately, why did God break into history and sacrifice his only son to rescue us? The reason behind it is all summed up in Titus 3.4. It's the kindness of God and his love for mankind that motivated God to intervene. His mercy moved him to act on our behalf. We see this in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This is the kindness of God. And his great love for mankind. God saving us by sheer grace. A common theme in rescue stories is, in the end, the hero is honored and memorialized. So it is here. In this real life rescue story, God the Father and God the Son are the unequivocal heroes. They are the actors who break into history to rescue man. They both sacrificed everything to save us. In the end, God the Father exalts and honors the Son for laying his life down to save us and rescue us. But you see, God the Father not only sent his Son to rescue us, but his desire was to give his Son a gift to memorialize him. What gift? What gift, you might ask? What gift? The son's own 24-7 hallelujah choir, praising him day and night for all eternity and singing his praises. Turn to John 6.39. We'll close with this. John 6.39, 
Jesus says, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. You see, the father gave us to the son as a gift to the son. He gave us the body of Christ, believers. He gave us to the son as a gift to the son. We, the ones saved by God and given to the son, can do nothing but respond to the son, sacrificially laying his life down on the cross to save us, to rescue us. We can do nothing but respond in worship, in gratitude, in thanksgiving, and sing hallelujah for all eternity. To God be all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise forevermore for rescuing us. And that is why this is unequivocally history's greatest rescue mission. Let's pray. Father, we don't have words to describe how much our hearts are wrenched with knowing what you sacrificed and what you gave up to save us. Rebels, sinners, running our own way, going astray. There's nothing of worth or merit in us. It was all your kindness and your love for mankind, your philanthropia for mankind. Father, your heart, your goodness, your love is what compelled you to send your only son. And it broke your heart to watch your son die on that cross. But through that, you redeemed us and you saved us and you poured out mercy on us. And we're so thankful. And it's why we respond while we're here today in worship, in gratitude, in singing your praises in the praise of the Son. And we know that that gives you all the honor and all the glory, Father. To that we say, hallelujah. Amen.